Welcome to the Evolutionary Parenting Podcast. I'm your host, Tracy Castles, PhD. We're all told that we need to be good parents, but what does this mean? Is it universal for all people of all walks of life? In this episode, I talk with my ongoing guest, Dr. Levita D'Souza, about a paper that piqued our interest, looking at the relationship of parenting styles with emotion regulation in a predominantly lower socioeconomic status and African-American sample. Through understanding the effects of parenting on emotion regulation, we can better understand the implications for child development in these marginalized communities. And yes, we need to consider the intersection of parenting and race and economics, because these have profound impacts for what we might consider a good parent. So let us take a look at this important work and what we can glean from it. All right. I am so happy to have back again with me, <laughs> Dr. Levita D'Souza, who needs no introduction anymore because I assume anyone listening knows who she is. And if not, just go back a few episodes. You'll, you'll know who she is and, and then you'll hear her again in the future. So it's all good. Um, thank you for coming back yet again, my dear. Thank you for having me back yet again, my dear. <laughs> All right. So we are, today's a little different. Normally you and I actually get to talk about a topic, a bigger topic, but today we're actually diving in on a paper, which is is new. So I want to start. So what we are talking about today is a paper entitled Infant Emotion Regulation and Cortisol Response During the First Two Years of Life, Association with Maternal Parenting Profiles. The article is in Developmental Psychobiology. Uh, it was published last year, and the authors are Drs. Wu and Fang. And before anyone gets up and says, oh, my God, how dare you talk about someone else's paper? You know, we want theirs. I have to say we have Dr. Wu's permission. So I actually asked Dr. Wu to be on the podcast, and unfortunately, she was unable to. But she said that if I were to talk about it, that was absolutely fine with her. So we have her blessing. I'm very thankful for that because this paper is really, really interesting, isn't it? It is very, very interesting because it starts to put together pieces of the puzzle we've been trying to solve for a while now. Exactly. So it's a work in progress and I love it. <laughs> exactly. And I think this is a good piece of the puzzle. So let's talk, um, you know, you hear from the title here, we're talking about what are our keywords here? Emotion regulation, cortisol response maternal parenting profiles, and I'm going to throw one more in there because it comes in here, attachment. And mm -hmm. these are kind of our key features. So I want to first just touch upon for people that are listening and may not know what emotion regulation is more generally and how it develops. Because if we're looking at this over the first two years in this study, why do we care? What? Why would we even look at this? And, you know, there's first this kind of integration of components to emotion regulation. It's not, it's not just one thing. So we have our physiological regulation. That is our regulation of cortisol, heart rate, etc. We have our emotional regulation. And that's more of our, um, how we feel even in response. Because remember, those cortisol and, you know, heart rate, they can go up to excitement as well, right? We're not just talking about negative. So we can have that emotional component that tells us where we're at. Is it negative? Is it positive? What's happening? We also have how we behave. And that's often when we're thinking about young kids. Are we crying? Are we moving away? Are we screaming? Are we tantruming? Are we smiling? Are we laughing? What's what's happening? So emotion regulation is really kind of an integration of all of these components together, how they develop together. 
And this takes time. This is not something that happens quickly. And I know, as we've talked about before, too many people try to suggest that young babies should be learning to uh, self-soothe and emotionally regulate at a young age. And it's just not something that happens quickly. But one thing we do know is that the development of these skills is quite plastic in the first few years. And one of the features that really affects it is, is parenting. Context shapes how we regulate our emotions. And when we start in infancy, one of the first things we see is what we call co-regulation. And that is us orienting to others for help. So babies become aware that I can't handle this. So they look to others, will you help me? And it's, we all see it. If you've had a kid, you know that times they look up at you or they're crying for you, not someone else. And they need your help to assess the situation to determine how to respond and then in turn regulate that emotional response. And at a certain point, there is a period of what we call the behavior physiology mismatch. And it's not even at a certain point, I guess, you know, it can happen at any time where people may look like they're not coping well or look like they are coping well. But if we look at their underlying physiology, they're kind of doing the opposite as it would say. So you might have someone that looks like they're actually coping quite well, but their physiology suggests that their stress is rising. Um, and someone who is, you know, crying for their parents and we think they're dysregulated, their stress is actually quite low because they're being comforted and that's, that's handling it. So the focus of this study was to look at the first two years and how all these factors kind of go together. What they're looking on here is really these maladaptive versus adaptive patterns. And that's this parenting profile is what does it lead to? Because we can have maladaptive patterns. Like I said, this behavioral physiology mismatch, an example of that in the research is that some children who have a mother who's depressed uh, will actually show what looks like these emotion regulation strategies. They're actually behaving in a way that looks like they're regulating. However, when we look at their cortisol levels, they're really high, sky high, and higher than others. And so we see that's a maladaptive emotion regulation. That's an attempt, but they're not really doing it very well. And if we only look at their behavior, we're missing a very crucial piece of the puzzle. And in another situation, we have a lot of kids that orient towards a responsive caregiver. So they're still crying perhaps, but they look at a caregiver, they get comforted, and that actually reduces their stress levels. And this would be adaptive. So we see these techniques working together or working in opposition to each other. Um, so I think, I mean, is there anything to add to that in terms of emotion regulation? Yeah. So while the three systems of your physiological emotion and um, the behavioral strategies, when the child's quite young and when it's a baby, often they're not working in sync. Okay, so as the development occurs, so as the brain develops, ideal or good enough emotional regulation is when the child's able to integrate all of these three to reduce the unpleasantness. So we look at um, emotional regulation, I guess, as a way of modulating the stress response, modulating neg negative emotional affect. Or on the other hand, when you're really, really excited to bring yourself down from this really high place to a place where it's balanced. And that's emotional regulation. And you say that it's adaptive and well when we're able to use a 
combination of co-regulation and self-regulation. But the self-regulation doesn't develop till much later. So for a child and a baby, the earlier stages is predominantly co-regulation. And that's really what they were looking at. And we'll get into kind of, you know, what mm -hmm. they were using mm -hmm. and how they looked at it. Mm -hmm. But that idea of parenting profiles is looking at how this interaction mm -hmm. is happening and what's happening mm -hmm. with the parent there. So one of the important things that we want to also set the basis for before we talk about this paper, and Livida, I'd love you to do this, is how attachment theory speaks to emotion regulation. So just a review of attachment theory, obviously, but also how that relates to a mother-infant dyad in, when there's a distressing situation and the subsequent emotion regulation that does or does not take place. Okay, so um, I'll just start with the basic attachment theory, okay? So we look at the attachment bond between an infant and the primary caregiver, okay? It's always from the infant towards the primary caregiver. The infant's born with the attachment behaviors that they organize within the attachment system. Now, what these behaviors are is very simply crying, clinging, and proximity seeking. Okay, um, why um, they're crying, why they're clinging? And I use clinging because I know some parents go, oh, we don't like to say the babies are clingy, right? But the clinging is from a very evolutionary primate perspective where we are designed to cling or be close to our primary caregiver. And it makes perfect sense when you think about babies not surviving in the wild. Primates don't survive in the wild if they don't have their mothers in close proximity. So the set goal of the attachment system is to get the mother in close proximity to you. So you will do it by calling out, which would be a behavioral strategy. You would do it by crying um, or, you know, making facial expressions or smiling, um, all of which, which is designed to get the attention from the mother towards you um, and get her closer to you. So in a positive way, if a baby is smiling at the mother, it's an attachment behavior. It's like, hey, mom, look at me, play with me, right? If the baby's crying, it's aversive to the mother. The set goal, again, being come here and attend to my needs. The mother's coming towards the baby will terminate the attachment need, the behavior, which brings the baby back to a state of regulation. Now, taking that one step further, the attachment system then works in conjunction with your exploratory system and your fear system. The goal of the exploratory system is for you to go out there and learn, and learn about your world, and learn about yourself, and learn about people, and develop cognitively, right? You cannot do that without the mother monitoring the environment for danger, or you monitoring the environment for danger. So if the baby is out there, and apparently there's some research which I recently came across, which found that in an unfamiliar environment, if mums were following the child or the toddler, um, the child was more likely to explore. It makes sense, though, because the child can go out there and have their attack, uh, the exploratory mm -hmm. system activated because the mum's monitoring for danger. Mm -hmm. um, on the other hand, when the fear system is activated, and this can be due to external cues, scary person in the environment, 
thunder, lightning, lightning, darkness, loud sounds, unfamiliar environment. Um, all the internal cues. Uh, I just don't feel well. My head hurts. I've, I'm, I've got a cold. My back hurts or whatever it is. Where the child's going, I'm not feeling very well here. Mm-hmm. When that system's activated, the behaviors that they're going to elicit is crying, which is likely to be aversive, I said before to mom, to come and help comfort, soothe, terminate, whatever it is that's making the child feel unsettled, right? Mm-hmm. So if you look at the exploratory system, the child uses the mother as a secure base from which they can go out and explore. When you look at the fear system, the child uses the mother as a safe haven where they can come back to and seek comfort. In either cases, you want a mom to be consistent across both these systems. Now, there's a third system called an affiliative and sociability system, which Bowlby and Ainsworth talked about um, in theory, but is not given much attention in research. And that's a topic for a different time, perhaps. But for now... We have so uh, many topics that we can get to. It's wonderful. (laughs) We've got this. Yes. (laughs) For now, we're just looking at what sensitive parenting or sensitive parenting profiles look across both these systems. So when the child's... So let, let me go back again. When we're looking at the attachment system, it's like a thermostat, Right a wired-in thermostat or like a heating system or whatever. It's never, ever turned off, okay, but can be turned on and off depending on what's happening in the environment and what's happening um, within me. Within the mother-infant diet, and I again, I use mothers um, loosely here. I mean primary caregiver, and I'll get to that in a second, okay? Within a mother-infant diet, if mom is here as a secure base, the attachment system's on but not activated. Because the exploratory system's on and the baby's out there playing. And so mom sensitively knows that that's what baby needs. Baby needs space. Baby needs to explore. Baby is not orienting towards mom. Baby is looking outside. Baby is, you know, doing whatever it is. Or child is out there climbing, whatever. Mom's job is to monitor for safety. Right? Uh, Oh, you're going too hard. And give the child a chance to work that out. If something happens in the environment and so... um, the child's exploratory behavior then gets terminated. The safe haven behaviors get activated and the child comes back for comfort. A sensitive mom then allows the child to come back, allows the child to follow, allows the child to cling, allows the child to scream, cry, whatever it is the child needs and works with the child to deactivate the system. Okay, so when we look at maternal profiles, and which we'll talk about in a minute, how a mother is sensitive or not sensitive determines how the child is likely to go out and explore or come back and seek help. And so for emotion regulation, Mm -hmm. which is often that seeking help element Mm -hmm. of the world, how they seek and how they regulate themselves may be, as we said, adaptive. Mm-hmm. Or maladaptive, depending mm-hmm. on the parenting the profile. Parenting profile. So, this is really what this study is getting at: is how mm-hmm. do we look at the maternal infant behaviors, and then relating? And again, as we said, because that adaptive and maladaptive isn't just looking at the behaviors; we have to get to the physiology, mm-hmm. hence the cortisol responses that mm-hmm. assess for this as well. So, um. We're going to get in. Please forgive me for my brief overview of the study because it has to be done. People need to know what happened here. But here we go. So first off, um, 
I want to make a point about this one because it is so amazing to see. Uh, this study was, they oversampled the low SES and African-American populations because of underserved prejudice against them. And in the paper, I have to quote this because this brought, I don't know, it made me happy to see this. Someone just acknowledging this, right? So they wrote, this observation is, so it was about um, basically some of the negative findings in the past about African-American parents and linking it to a lower quality of parenting profiles. And they said this observation is potentially due to the hostile climate of prejudice that this population has experienced. So right off the bat, we are looking at a study that is inclusive, that is really looking to include groups. You know, most parenting studies, just this is my tangent for the moment, most parenting <laughs> studies, I apologize, um, take place at universities, which are in predominantly white and American universities in predominantly white towns and predominantly wealthy towns, because universities often bring finances themselves. And so who ends up going in to do research? White, wealthy families. And we cannot and should not base our understanding of parenting on this subpopulation. And so I just have to give the full shout out here to seeing something. And, you know, I have had other people on the show that do this. I, I had the joy of speaking to Anjali Palmquist about her work in breastfeeding this. Work. And it's right. I mean, oh, she's so amazing. Um, I love her. Um, but there is just so much of this that needs to come out. And so I am just so happy to see this happening in this field. So I just, I have to give that shout out there. That was something that just had to be included here. So we are not looking at what wealthy white women do. And that's really, really important because that is not parenting around the world. That's just simply not the case. So what do we have here? All right. Um, we have 1,141 dyads, which blew my mind. And I thought I read it wrong the first time because they actually assessed all the measures for everyone. So this oh. is one of the largest. I mean, you do not get this kind of size in a study either. And again, primarily low-income families, 40% of the population was African-American in this, 40% of the sample, pardon me, not population. Um, there were three different time assessments at six months, at 15 months, and 24 months. So we also have a longitudinal study going on here. Um, parenting behaviors were assessed using a free play interaction that was videotaped and coded. I can't even imagine the people doing the coding. I did I know, right? right? <laughs> I got tired reading it. Um, and then there were specific tasks given to the children that are well-known tasks like arm restraints and everything to elicit negative em emotions with the mother present. And so the negative emotion and then the behavior of the child, um, both regulatory or co-regulatory, was coded. Um, and then, of course, they used cortisol measures of saliva. So after the task, they measured the saliva to ascertain, well, 20 minutes after, because that's when it shows up in saliva, they measured it. So they had all of these kind of things in place. And so that's, that's the study in a nutshell, uh, the findings here. So let's start with, they identified four maternal parenting profiles. And before I give you the breakdown, I'll give you the names. And then Levita, if you could please explain what this means with respect to attachment, because otherwise, I mean, they sound very normal, but um, 
they have detached, intrusive, average, and engaged. So if we think about the attachment system, how would these all play into what you've just described about these different engagement and fear systems? That's right. So before I launch into that, the authors haven't said this. So this is my interpretation of what these parenting groups are. So I'm applying my understanding of attachment theory to what these groups can potentially mean, right? How the authors describe detached from their paper is the mum not being um, emotionally aware or was completely emotionally um, uninvolved with the child on the particular tasks that they assessed. Now, when I apply attachment theory to this, I would think this is a possibly an avoidant mum um, or an avoidant caregiver. And what that would mean is they're quite happy to let the child go out there and explore because they're more comfortable in that system. But when it comes to comfort seeking, so safe haven type behaviors of cringing, crying, um, you know, any sort of behavior that will help, that needs mom to terminate it, um, these moms struggle with. So it's not that they don't do it at all. It's just that they tend to be better at letting the child explore being out there than comforting the child when the child comes in for um, comfort seeking, right? Intrusive, on the other hand, how the authors define it is, um, let me have a look at this. Um, I think basically it's very mother-led and the mother directing the child in their play. That's how the authors define it. This could be possibly an anxious, ambivalent mum, okay, which is where the fear, they're better at comforting because they keep the child in closer proximity at the cost of their exploratory needs. So sometimes these mums have trouble or are more likely to perceive danger when it's really not there. So it's like, don't climb too high or, you know, that sort of behaviors. Now, um, and that's just a very loose example. That's certainly not indicative of attachment styles, right? You have to have a proper test. So don't use this as, oh my God, am I an avoidant mom or am I an attached mom, like anxious mom? It's not. We uh, all, I'm just going to say, we all have our fears. So yes, I know like yes. I, when my kids go to the water, I'm like, don't go in there. Don't do that. Yeah, but yeah. I don't think I'm that. So don't panic if you have something that makes you fearful yeah. that doesn't make you an intrusive mom. Intrusive it's just, mom exactly. No, no. no. <laughs> That's not what we're saying at all. But these are sometimes examples of, and these are consistent patterns that are repeated over the child's interactions. So, you know, you would have even a securely attached mom, which is, you know, mom that has a balance of um, exploration and fear and comfort seeking would still show some of these behaviors. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but when we have a predominantly intrusive mom, it's one that tends to get in the way of the child's exploration needs, but is more comfortable um, tending to their fear needs. Okay. okay. And then we have the average engaged, which I think engaged mums, it's a smaller population here in this paper, but they were quite highly sensitive. And then there was the average mums, which I think what Winnicott would have called the good enough mother, you know, not great mm -hmm. at everything, but not particularly terrible at anything. So yeah. um, there would have been more ruptures in the attachment bond, but mom was available to repair it. And I think this would have been the good enough mums. Okay, perfect. All right. So what was our breakdown? And this was, I found really interesting this break, I, I have to say is that, um, so A, the detached moms made up 20.7% of the population. 
-hmm. The intrusive moms were 15%. The average moms were the highest at 37.5%. But the engaged moms came in second at 26.8%, mm -hmm. which I think kind of counters this notion that, you know, we don't see these highly engaged mothers in these lower SES populations and whatnot. Now, to say that, there was still the engaged group had a higher income to needs ratio than the other groups. And this isn't, so what does this mean? It means that their income was proportionally higher to the need that they have to survive. And so therefore, yes, does our socioeconomic status affect our parenting? And I believe the note I wrote down here was no shit. Um, it is, you know, this was not, obviously not to the authors either. This was not yeah. a surprise, but it just highlights here when we start to think about parenting, we cannot do it outside of the lens of these contexts and environments and situations that people find themselves in. Um, so the engaged group also had a lower proportion of African-American families. Again, probably very much linked to this SES as well. So we have that. The average group had the second highest to lowest proportion for SES. Again, not surprising how SES seems to have this linear effect down here. Um, and now in terms of the association with emotion regulation. So we have to remember there were three time periods. And this is, I think, we'll want to maybe explore this a little bit, kind of what yeah. they found of this. So the Let's, okay, where to start here. The highest orienting to mom. So when kids oriented to mom to get her kind of, okay, this is happening, help me, um, at time two happened in the engaged group. Not surprising, I think, mm -hmm. that by time two, and these time periods matter because at time one, you know, part of the question here is what predicts what? Does the orienting predict emotion regulation? Does emotion regulation predict orienting? Does maternal response? How does all of this fit into what's happening? So obviously what we see in the engaged group is that by 15 months of age, which is that time too, they show the highest orienting. I think I've learned that you're going to help me. So mm -hmm. can you help me? Look at me. I need your help. Please come. Um, now we also have cortisol recovery and that's, so in this paper, I actually should go back. They measured cortisol, but it was also the recovery, which means our cortisol spikes to a stressor. And then how quickly does it go back down to baseline? Cause that's actually really more important uh, than how high it goes. Obviously the height matters to a certain degree, but if we recover from that, we are okay. If we don't recover well, or it takes really long to recover, that's often associated with some of the, the worst outcomes. So in the engaged group, what we see was that the cortisol recovery at time two, so how well they recovered at time two, um, and this is, I believe, Levita, correct me, this is with maternal mm -hmm. responsiveness, right? So they orient parents, help them, and then they recover. Predicted, yeah. it positively predicted child orienting at time three. So those mothers, the kids in time two, in the engaged group, pardon me. Um, but noticeably, there was a negative relationship between these two variables in the intrusive and detached group. So what we mean is that for the engaged group, how well your child recovered at time two was positively associated with how much they look to you at time three. However, for these intrusive and detached groups, 
how well they recover at time two, they veer away from mom at time three. What are your thoughts on that? Because from these systems, how do we make sense of these differences there? What occurs to me in just looking at this is if I exhibit a behavior and I expect it to work in a certain way and it works in a way that I expect it to work, then I'm going to use it again, Mm -hmm. right? So in the engaged group, and when we define orienting, the authors here define orienting is nonverbal signals, not the verbal signals. So they're nonverbally either, you know, giving a facial expression, looking towards mom or something in their nonverbal behavior. They're indicating to their mom, hey, I'm not okay. Right. And so, of course, the engaged group is used to mom sensitively responding to it. So they're going, I've done this before. I know it works. Let me do more of it. Right. Um, And that we would explain that. And what does work mean? Is their recovery is quicker. So the more they recover from it, the more they know it works. And the more they're going to use that particular strategy, which means I'm going to tell mom, I'm not okay. Come help me here. The negative relationship is interesting here because what just looking at that, it suggests to me that cortisol recovery wasn't possibly linked to orienting, Yeah, which means they were recovering, but something else was at play, yeah. not the orienting to mom. Well, and we know that they also, I think if I, I remember correctly, they were not orienting, like the highest orienting at time two, they had lower levels of orienting all around. Mm -hmm. So even at time two, orienting wasn't something that was commonly happening within that group. So it was almost like by time two, they had learned something about, okay, I'm going to solve this myself, which is adaptive in a way for them. Like we talk about these emotion regulation strategies, they had learned something as to how to do it themselves to get themselves down, but it didn't have to do with that Mm co-regulation system. And so therefore going forward. So we see a similar kind of relationship here. So one of the other things they assessed was the level of negative emotions that the child displays. So as you were talking about the child's facial expressions, so not just orienting to looking, but crying, et cetera, would be those displays. And negative emotion at time two, the degree of negative emotion at time two, was positively related to child orienting at time three in the average groups. These are the good enough moms. So it's not, um, they have to display this distress in a way. And when they display it well um, and highly, the, the more they display this emotion, the more they learn to orient at time three to get their help. But again, we have a negative relationship in the intrusive and detached groups. So again, what are your thoughts on how this plays out and what it means? Very simply, the heightened negative emotion is not likely to elicit the kind of response that will terminate that emotional state. So over time, the child has now learned that crying is not getting me anything here. Um, It will orient to mum. So there's no point um, doing it because... In the, in the good enough mums, yeah, if I cry, maybe when I looked, she didn't look, but I'm crying now and it certainly got her attention. 
I'll try again. With the other two groups, it's like, what's the point? Yeah. I'm not going and, to, no, what's the point? Yeah. And I think going, looking at the engage group, part of the lack of relationship kind of either way is just that they might not need to. The fact that the orienting does it, that they orient enough, that's enough for the sensitive mom to jump in and be like, ah, oh, I see you need me and let me come in. You don't need to give me stage two and three of your distress for me to be able to tell that you need my assistance. Is that a fair our assumption think, yeah. of what's happening I think, here? I think that's exactly <laughs> what's happening, yeah. Okay. So now in terms of the actual emotion regulation development, what they saw was that negative emotion at time two predicted greater cortisol reactivity and recovery at time three. So when we take that piece, we have that at time two, the more emotional you are, it leads to also more reaction. Like we said, that first stress response is higher at time three, but so is your recovery. It does well. And I just feel, I, I'd love to hear your take, but for me, it feels like that is just speaking to these groups who feel like they can vocalize and get the response that they need. So it's not about the fact that you feel it more at time two. It's the fact that you can express it more and have it responded to that leads to both. You do feel the stress, but you also recover from it very quickly. And I think that's across the board and generally, isn't it? Like you think of the general yeah. arousal model, a stress response, a stressor is likely to elicit a physiological response, which is my cortisol reactivity. Mm -hmm. I then cry and have a really good cry and I recover from it. So yeah. I think that's generally what's happening. Yeah. One thing I will add, though, that kind of struck me, and again, this is just me theorizing, obviously, because we can't get in, but... Because that negative emotion at time two was kind of more in the average group, right? That was, we saw that relationship stronger. It does make me think that link to cortisol reactivity is that what hasn't been learned is, I would hope that, I have to backtrack here, my goodness. I would hope that we react or we orient and with a sensitive parent, we learn, okay, I'm actually safe. I can get this at these ages, right? And so we would actually hope to reduce the reactivity as long as we're not dealing with orchids because they're just out of play here. Um, <laughs> but if, you know, so that by time three, all those things aren't necessarily stressful enough because we don't have to react so strongly because we know we're taken care of. So it feels like some of this, that, that link to the greater cortisol reactivity is that we still haven't learned everything's as safe because I've had to vocalize each time. I have to keep experiencing the stress enough to say, hey, over here, pay attention to me um, to get that reaction. But because we get that reaction, the recovery is just as quick as well because we do get the response that's needed. That, mm. yeah. Am I totally out of... No, I think that makes sense. And I think, and look, part of it is the co-regulation aspect, but also at time three, you would start to think that some of their own developmental processes have probably kicked in. So yeah. the patterns are starting to be a bit more stabilized. And what they're saying is, you know, higher negative emotion at time two predicts greater cortisol reactivity because the systems are now starting to link and work together. Um, mm -hmm. And that's what we're starting to see, that the more I feel, the more I'm likely to ex ex express how I feel, and I'm going to recover from it too. 
Yeah. Okay. And so then the last little one that I want to talk about in terms of the findings was that orienting to moms at time one predicted greater cortisol reactivity at time two. And that I think probably surprises a lot of people. Like I admit when I first read it, you kind of go, wait a second. But when we think about the ages here, I just want to remind people of the ages. Time one is six months of age. And time two is 15 months of age. So our experience of events is very different at each of these times. So from your perspective with this attachment systems, what do you make of that particular finding? I think they're working on their attachment system. So I think that <laughs> they're trying to experiment because you would think 15, 16 months is where the separation anxiety and stuff starts to, you know, really kick in and they're, you know, it does my system work. Um, and so if they're orienting to mums and one way of, one signal to orient would be an internal felt state, then they would continue to use that every time they felt um, anxious or worried or had a higher stress response. And so I'm not surprised at this as well, because I think there's other factors that can sort of play in here. But I think we sort of need to mention that this isn't the average group. This is not for all the other groups, right? So this is where they're going. Let me just check if my attachment system works. I'm feeling worried because you've mm -hmm. you know held my hands down and I don't like the feeling um and I'm not going to orient to mom and of course I have a stress response to it yeah and I know I'm, I'm hoping as mom has done in the past she's going to come back and make this better for me yeah that makes sense and so I mean the overall messages from the findings in the paper was first we have to acknowledge that uh the patterns of parenting that we see are the same in these lower income, low SES groups and these marginalized groups that we see in our more affluent white women who get the majority of study. And this is really important because we really have treated these groups as being somehow distinct and different and that their parenting is lesser. And no, they, they, they show the same patterns we do. Um, that is what it is. And again, I just want to go back to that role of SES that, you know, guess what? Not panicking about where your next meal is coming from actually makes a difference to your parenting. So who knew really? it? I mean, my, right. I know. I know. <laughs> totally shocking. My goodness. Um, so that is something that I think we all need to keep in mind. But to acknowledge that any kind of discrimination against these groups because of how we view it is just not valid. It is not scientifically backed. And this is a large enough sample. I actually feel fair saying that, to be quite honest. When you're looking mm. at over 1,100 dyads, um, we are not looking at just 40 families and trying to make, you know, some decision about that. So, so first off, so we have that. Second, early responsive and sensitive parenting reduces infant stress. Again, not a shocker, right? No, Just no matter who you are, where you are, what you're doing, being responsive and sensitive helps your baby's stress system, right? And I think the way you explain it with the, the different activation of the exploration and the safety-seeking behaviors, 
Yeah, of course, because we can be stressed in either of those situations, stressed because we can't explore or stressed because we feel unsafe when we get to come home again. Both of those are really important to have. Um, and then this last one is this high cortisol reactivity early leads to greater emotion regulation because it engages sensitive parents to respond. And this, I think, speaks to what you were saying, right? Yes, it does. And I think this is, links back to the point where we say orienting at time one predicts higher cortisol reactivity in time two. So that's the point I think it's linked to. Because what they found was in the engaged group, time one predicted higher cortisol reactivity at time two. In the intrusive group as well, time one predicted higher cortisol reactivity in time two. However, when you look at the bigger picture, right, the mechanisms there were quite different. Yeah. Okay. Because the third piece of the puzzle, which we have to add in here, was their recovery as well. Um, and, you know, whether or not they continue to use that behavior. So in the engaged group, while the time one predicted greater cortisol reactivity, it also promoted more orienting behaviors, right? So they yeah. did successfully co-regulate with their mums. Yeah. In the intrusive group, while time one negative emotion predicted greater cortisol reactivity, just like the engaged group, by time three, they had stopped orienting or reduced the orienting to mums. So while the engaged group, and on the surface, it looks like they had similar patterns, one used co-regulation, and the other perhaps relied on another form of regulation, which is more likely either they stopped orienting or they stopped asking. So they basically use their behavior rather than um, co-regulation to manage the stress. Because I want to talk about this one. It does. Yeah. And I want to talk about it more because I thought that was one of those findings that really, really blew my mind was yeah. this similar pattern and then this difference. And, and the, they talk about this, right? There's doctors Wu and Hen discuss these possibilities about these different patterns. Um, mm -hmm. You know, but here's my question to you as the attachment researcher for this is that, so we see this pattern. So say both kids are sensitive at the start. They're looking, they're orienting, they're trying to get help, but one, you know, so they have this greater cortisol reactivity because you've said, you know, the intrusive parenting is good at that responsiveness to that fear, that safety seeking. So by time two, they've got, you know, their higher cortisol reactivity. I know this, they orient more, you know, they're doing all this stuff, but then by time three, it's totally different. So would, I would think just logically that when there was a stressor, they might still go to that caregiver who's intrusive because that has been the thing they're good at, but that's clearly not happening by time three, right? So yeah. how does this fit in with that? Obviously, probably it has to do with the uh, exploration system, but mm -hmm. I guess my question is, how does that make sense? Because it seems to be the opposite of what you'd expect if that's their system that, that works. Right. So intrusiveness is one aspect of that type of an attachment pattern, okay? What um, typifies, if that's a better word, or, you know, what, what makes the anxious or resistant attachment pattern is inconsistent care. 
So while they're better at regulating the fear responses, they're frustrating the exploratory responses, but they may not be consistent in their care. Okay. Right. So what we find in other research is your insecurely attached, anxious children, right, mm-hmm. um, tend to signal distress more and louder, even okay. if they're not feeling it. Because okay. what they've learned is simple orienting perhaps doesn't work. I almost have to keep my attachment system activated louder and higher to get mom's mm-hmm. attention. So what I think is happening here is that they're feeling it and what looks like, you know, appropriate termination of the system, it isn't because the child's continuing to feel frustrated because there's somehow a mismatch between what the caregiver is offering and what the child needs. Okay. And that makes sense. I can see that now. Like that is, it's, yeah, it, but it doesn't, you know, you have to like from the surface, you're just going, but but this is what they do. That's the only part they're kind of good at, but it's true. It can lead to the mismatch and that just inconsistency of what a child needs not to orient because they don't know really that they're going to get it right at any given right. point, right? That's the... And we have to look at the role of emotion here, which is probably, we're slightly going off track, but I think it's important when you look at what the what emotion the child uses to communicate to the mother so Mm -hmm. anger for example doesn't necessarily mean the mother um, is needed to cuddle the child constantly this is just an example right anger can be the child's indication is i'm frustrated with my exploratory needs Mm -hmm. so sometimes you know try and cuddle a child who doesn't want to be cuddled yeah so the mom's going i'm here i'm trying to make you feel okay but you know, you're not letting me even cuddle you. That's not what the child needs. The child's frustrated and the crying is a way of expressing that frustration. So the difference could be a mom who goes, yeah, I'm just going to give you space to cry. I'm not ignoring you, but I'm right here while you're crying. Mm -hmm. Right. And I'll come in when you're ready to let me in. Versus moms who will follow the child around trying to give them a cuddle because that's what they I think know. they're supposed to do, but you're not, you know? know. Um, um, and, and I think that can be an example of a mismatch between what the child needs and what the mom thinks the child needs. And that's not very sensitive because yeah. crying's okay, but crying can elicit a lot of feelings in caregivers because we well, want to terminate it as quickly as possible. And there's judgment too. I mean, I just, I'm, I'm going to go off on a tangent here. Well, not a tangent because it's related to what you just said, but um, it is, I work with a lot of families who really feel like they've done something wrong if their child doesn't yes. want to come cuddle them because we've somehow decided in our culture to tell people that like, sorry, if you're not, if your child doesn't want to come straight to you and only you, then there's something wrong with you, that you're a bad parent. And it is not true at all. They can be, there's this, I also point out that sometimes kids are testing their own emotion regulation skills. They're trying to figure out what am I capable of doing until they realize I'm not capable of this. I got to go find mom because this is no, or dad or whoever it is. Cuddle me right now because this is really not working for me. You know, so you, you, and that goes from like 10 seconds of kicking me away to no, I need a cuddle. So I kicking me away 10 minutes, 10 seconds ago. Yeah. Um, But exactly. But balance. Yes. And you know, I always say just for a little bit of a point here is that, 
you know, when I work with families, I'm like, when someone doesn't want to be with you, sit down, be like, you know what? I'm here whenever you're ready. I am that rock. I'm just going to sit down here and I get it. You need your space. I'm here whenever you're ready. And I want to also add that I suck at that. And I often have to rely. I hate you. Right? I've gotten better at times, but my daughter still reminds me sometimes when it's my son who's upset. And I'm like, oh, she's like, mom, you know, you always said that we need space. And so I think you need to give him a space. And I have to do that. Um, I get explicitly told I need my alone time. So yeah. I know what that means. You know, that just means get out of my space right now. I exactly. don't need you. I'll come to you when I have a problem. And I'm like, well, that's what you want, isn't it? It is. You I come know. come to me when you have a problem. I know. That's exactly. <laughs> and so it is. But I just want to highlight that it's it's not easy as a parent, right? Because no, we have not. both the cultural expectations of us being, you know, we feel like we're failing when they don't want to come to us. But also... Just the sound, my heart, my kids get upset, right? There's this just, oh my God, let me help you. Um, but it's not our job to always do it. Our job is to, as you say, give them the space when they need it to match. Our job is to match. Whatever that happens to be their need, we have to match it. And it's hard, but I do believe we can do it. Um, so I want to talk, I know we're, we're coming up on time, but I want to talk about a couple more things here of this mm-hmm. paper, because I think it's important. And this idea of self-sufficiency in the detached group, because they show, yeah, go, just go. There you go. <laughs> oh, goodness. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, I've had, I've had parents I've worked with say to me, you know, um, you know, my child went to gone to kindergarten and you know it's no we've gone to childcare it's the first day and they were off exploring with their toys and I'm like where were you oh no I just I just left um okay if your child's not getting activated in an unfamiliar environment I'd be considering what's going on either they haven't realized you've left (laughs) yet right and so they're going yeah yeah you gotta be around she's around there somewhere but sorry I just did this is why we tell people don't walk away from your kid without saying Mm -hmm. goodbye because that is a shocker Mm -hmm. when suddenly you've disappeared there is a a good reason for this so Mm -hmm. yeah Mm -hmm. and look some children are better able at regulating but I think for a child this young or baby that young it's quite unusual to not have a response in an not have a distress response in an unfamiliar environment so when we apply that to a detached group and even at 15 months of age when the mum in this particular case is unaware or uninvolved Mm -hmm. Very quickly, the child learns that expressing my needs, expressing emotion or letting them somehow know I need them is not safe. We look at that and go, what a perfectly well-behaved child. Can I just add one thing? Is it always not safe or just not helpful? Not helpful. Yeah. Okay, yes. I just want to clarify that it's not always that they feel it's unsafe to approach the parent, like an anxious of, of yeah, you know, like an, uh, yeah. and, and you know, th- there is that difference of like, oh, they might yes. harm me, as opposed to you're useless, you're not going to do anything for me. Yes, kind of and I think I use safety in the context of proximity seeking. So being close doesn't feel safe because mom will either reject me or mom is not involved. So I have all these big feelings inside. 
and mom's not a safe place for me to deposit it. Yeah. That's the safe haven. So are you safe in that context? Not that mom's yeah. going to harm me, although that happens to, too. <laughs> but I didn't want you having any like misclarification. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. my goodness. No, yes, yeah. yes. So the safe haven behaviors are what we call, uh, you know, that's so th I don't use you as a secure base or I can use you as a secure base because you're quite happy for me to go out and explore, but I can't use you as a safe haven because yeah. my big feelings are not welcome. Oh, any feeling is not welcome. Positive, perhaps, but any other than that. And so mom's not monitoring, mom's not involved, mom's quite unaware of what baby mm -hmm. is feeling. And at 15 months old, to be able to learn that, you can see the pattern of interaction that has been played out. It breaks my heart to think about that. It and it is, you know, there is that point. And, and this, so, I mean, to get to this point is that, to close this off, to get to our last point here, but it is that idea of self-sufficiency is behavioral. And this yeah. is where we saw that there it's not necessarily physiological and it's not necessarily adaptive, although we'll get to the question of adaptivity here in some mm -hmm. of this, because I think that's that's little final piece, but it is not, whenever we judge people, whenever I hear and I think about it in sleep training or daycare or anything, you know, the idealized in our culture is to say the child that just shows no distress and does fine. Well, those are the parents we want to look to. And I think what I love about this study is it really tries to show us that actually, no, that's not necessarily the behaviors that are, are best. And there will be times that our engaged kids are fine because like you described in terms of this exploration and safe haven, we were right in that perfect spot. So they just look like this happy go lucky run around do whatever kind of child. That's great. But the idea that children should always be like that has to go away. It does that that is not. Yes. Yeah. It's because not, essentially what you're saying is the child shouldn't have their attachment system activated, that they should yeah. not be seeking comfort from um, their mothers and they should be okay to be seeking comfort from any caregiver. Now, that is okay in time because we know that children form various attachments to various people. And you want that from an adult parenting perspective. You want multiple caregivers to come in. You want your child to be very well attached to a daycare person. Two, even better, three, great, because your child's being supported in this network of great attachments, right? But that doesn't happen in the first time you drop off your child and go away. It takes time. It doesn't and happen the second time or third time. It doesn't. Or Sometimes right? it can take months yeah. before the child, find, and depending on the temperament, before the yeah. child finally feels like I can now come to you as a safe haven and I know you've got my best interest at heart. It might not be perfect and that's okay, but it doesn't happen right away. You know, this reminds me of, and I cannot remember who did the study, so I apologize because I always feel guilty when I don't remember the name of at least one researcher, um, but so is the case, uh, of research looking at separation in primates with young young babies. And they tried to, I think actually Megan Gunner took part on it. And yes. they looked at the variety of different situations in which they separated the baby. And it was fascinating because at a very young age, and remember, we're looking at only up to two years of age here, right? So these are very young children. And they looked at the stress response to separation in these primates under a variety of conditions. So they had the typical, you know, they separate them both with researchers. They just take mom away. They just take baby away. 
And then in one condition, which blew my mind, they left the baby with the allo parents, the grandparents, the family that they grown up with. And guess what? They still showed their stress response to the separation. So these are with caregivers they knew and had been attached to. And I think from a developmental perspective, they were younger than we would say it mm -hmm. two years here. So this was younger, but it just highlights the amount of time it takes for that attachment to others to take place. It is not an immediate thing. It mm -hmm. takes tons and tons of exposure and frankly, practice being passed back to mom to learn that these people are, are actually helpful and safe. Mm -hmm. Part of that attachment building is understanding that these people will bring you back to the person you love. And that's it. And right. And that is exactly the point, right? It's not about not being um, separated from mom. Of course, the, the point of the whole attachment system is to be activated at, at separation that says it's working. So I'm not surprised the children are stressed. Does that mean we never separate our children? No, that's not what I'm saying because we do need to go to work and we do need to go and attend to other children and we do have other responsibilities. But if you are doing it, can we make sure you're doing it in a way that's gonna minimize the stress the child feels? So exactly. over time, um, over um, you know, making sure that the people you're leaving with are on similar on the similar pages you have similar styles to you are able to communicate so you become a network around this child to support the child exactly um, yeah no i know exactly so okay we have to get because of our time we, we have to get to the final finding here yes. that we talked about and this is this idea of adaptiveness because right we talk about this in a cultural context here so when it comes to the findings, one of the things we saw was, of course, as I mentioned earlier, that a lot of African-American families in this tended to fall into this detached um, group. Uh, and that is, so we could argue that it is just a part of them, but I think it's, as this argues, this is maybe culturally socialized adaptation. Correct. Right? Yeah. And so I just want to read a little quote from here, which I really mm -hmm. hope I'm allowed to do because, you know, but maybe I've got permission. <laughs> um, I meant from the journal. <laughs> but here we go. I'm going to do it anyway. Um, African-American mothers may be closely related to the cultural socialization belief to punish and minimize children's negative emotion. This cultural socialization belief can be adaptive given African-American children can experience greater discrimination when expressing anger and mother's encouragement of their children's negative emotion was related to poorer emotional outcomes for African-American, but not white children. So here we go to this idea that despite the fact that we think about outcomes in terms of emotional reactivity, we also have to think longer right? This is something that goes beyond just this age two, but to a lifelong learning of shut it down. Because if you shut it down, you will be safer in the long run. And what are, I mean, what are your thoughts on this? Because this... It just makes perfect sense from the perspective of attachment as well, because we know it transmits from one generation to another. We know any of these behaviors are adaptive in the context that they're occurring. 
So if there's intergenerational poverty, if there's a history of racism, if there's a history of social inequity, we cannot be judgmental of detached mothers here. Because what they're saying is we don't have time to be sitting there while we're trying to get the next meal. We're trying to keep our children safe. We're trying not to get hurt while we're out on the street. So in that context, we need to find more culturally appropriate labels um, to define this parenting style. I think detached is a label that we're using quite loosely for this group because I imagine there'll be a history of trauma. I imagine there's a history of poverty. I imagine there's a history of racism. I mean, there is a history of racism. We know that, right? Um, Which, of course, if the mom's fear system is activated all the time, how is she going to be sensitive? No. How can she be sensitive? She's out there just trying to keep her child safe. Yeah. And, you know, the authors talk about this. I love, again, this quote, and I'm... um, Quoting again from the paper, African-American infants showed less cortisol reactivity at time two than white infants, which may be an indicator of an intergenerational adaptation to historical conditions of stress associated with racism and social injustice. And that just says it all, is that... and. And so without looking, and, and this again just brings me to why I love this paper so much, is that when we ignore this group or we try to define it according to our standards that have been defined by whiteness and privilege and high SES, well, we judge the parenting as being subpar, as opposed to doing what we need to do, which is judge the society surrounding the parenting Mm -hmm. and put that into context because it is absolutely, as you put it, I mean, this is, this is what they need to do. When we look at the intergenerational trauma, we see epigenetic changes that take Mm -hmm. place. So, you know, one of those can be stress reactivity. We see it in rat pups. You know, we've seen that when we stress out, you know, the baby by taking them away, mom licks them more, it changes their stress reactive for generations. And what has happened historically with racism and social injustice is something that can't be ignored. No, it cannot. And we don't have the labels to define that just yet. So we're very loosely using, you know, detached and intrusive and all of that sort of stuff to then apply it to issues that are more than than just within the mother-child, mother-infant dyad and issues that are in the culture and the context that can influence that. um, But we're not capturing it as well as we would like. Exactly. And I think it's fair, you know, and I, I get it because we use detached when you're looking at a high SES white family with privilege who's ignoring their child. Detached is a very easy term to go to. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it really does say like, yeah, I think that's detached. But mm-hmm. of course, we cannot just like, I mean, let's be honest here, we're looking at emotion regulation here. And there are children that show behaviors quote unquote, of emotion regulation that are not emotionally regulating at all. Their stress still mm-hmm. remains high. They're just mm-hmm. putting on the facade of this. And similarly, this idea of detached parenting is not inherently detached. It may be, you know, I'm teaching you something that's going to keep you alive. This is mm-hmm. so crucially important. And, mm-hmm. oh, anyway, I'm, I 
could go on, okay. but I just. I mean, look. Yeah, I, I will. I will say something here, though, because um, when you look at the white detached mothers as well, I think it's not. No one by choice wants to be like that. Yes. No. 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 <laughs> you I know, should be clear. There's not an element of choice there at yes. all. Sometimes, when we there's nothing to say that white privileged moms don't experience trauma. There's right. nothing to say white privileged moms don't have a history of or coming from a culture where um, I think and you, you and um, someone I can't remember talked about the authoritative knowledge. Jenny. Oh, Jenny. Yes. Jenny. Jenny Rosa. Yes. Uh, because they've, they would have had parents in that generation yeah. where they were told that good parenting means being detached. And so yeah. they're just transmitting that down. Yes. So I think we really need to stop, um, you know, not, not judging based on labels, but try and uncover what these patterns of interactions are between the mom-child diet and how, with the knowledge and research we have, to facilitate a child seeking proximity to the parent being okay. Absolutely. And that's, I should actually clarify, the reason I said it's easy to look at that and come up with yeah. that term is because what we're seeing is the surface. So thank you. Correct. Because yes, I wasn't mean, but it's, I, I see how we look at this and just say right away, well, you look like you have everything and this is what you're doing. Mm -hmm. So the word that comes to mind becomes detached. And it's not, you know, frankly, I think you're right about labels. I would love to see a change for it for, I mean, anyone, because as you said, is I just don't, I don't think anyone does want to be detached. I mm -hmm. think, I mean, maybe there's that one person out there, but you know what? They're allowed to be the outlier that is, <laughs> I just got to say, maybe there's one, there's somebody who's like, no, 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 I want nothing to do with this. I want to. I'm done. But I, I, I do think, you know, people are allowed to be however they want to be, you know, and I yeah. do think um, sometimes choices are uninformed choices. Yeah. And the reason I choose to do this is because it's my job to give you the information. It's your job to take it or not. And that's up to you, really. Yeah. Um, you know, and yeah, is the information comprehensive and enough? No, we could. That's what research is. We've got to keep building on this. Yeah. Um, so I think I think when we look at these labels, and I think uh, uh, from the perspective of attachment theory as well, it doesn't mean if you're detached or avoidant is that you're only detached and avoidant. You often will have a secondary profile as well. Mm -hmm. And the best part about all of this is if you have a detachment out there going, oh my God, that's me, is it's malleable. Yeah. It is changeable. It is plastic. You can still do something about it. But this is where I want to add in. And I think this is where the difference comes when we look at this profile in, even if it comes from trauma, whatnot, in a, in a well, high SES white woman is that well, we can say yeah. you can change, That's you it. change and make it better. But when we look at people that are under systemic pressures, it is not so easy to say, no, 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 you can change because that change can have very negative consequences if we're not changing the entire system. Mm -hmm. I mean, I can't afford therapy if I don't know where my next meal is. So, you know, yeah. it, it just makes... But also, you think about this idea of if I raise a child who's allowed to express anger and that mm -hmm. leads to worse outcomes, that could mean my child gets shot. That mm -hmm. could mean my child, you know, is attacked, kicked out of school, you know, whatever. That is a very real negative outcome of changing your parenting style. And that requires an entire societal shift before we can get there because you're basically saying 
you know, not you, sorry, I should, but basically what we're saying when we go to get to that is that, no, 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 you just need to be a better parent, but being a better parent is actually going to put your child in more danger. So go do it. And that's just such a dangerous thing to say. Whereas if we say, you know, or even not better, well, it is what we would qualify as better parenting, but you need to change your parenting. And this is why, and you choose to, but I got to give you the caveat that you're putting your kid in more danger. If someone came up to me and said, I would like you to do this, it's actually going to be better for this system for your child, but their lives are in greater danger. I would probably show them the door and slam it behind them and be like, check you later. Exactly. And it's not about whether the child's life is realistically in danger, but there's enough evidence to prove that it has been in the past. Exactly. Um, It may not be in this case. And so you'd have mother's fears being activated here based on the generations of systemic um, racism that's been activated. So we know that, yeah, emotional expression doesn't automatically mean that um, the child's going to be expelled. But we also know that racism exists where a child of a certain race with expressing emotion is more likely to be punished than a child of a different race. And Mm -hmm. the parents are aware of this. And that's not in the parenting repertoire or control and so they'll do that what works for them yeah. which is let's inhibit this yeah exactly and that's just and so again i mean taking this all together i think mm-hmm. is that what we're seeing from this paper is it's complicated <laughs> it is i know <laughs> right <laughs> just oh it's complicated. There is so much to unpack and it's, mm-hmm. but we tend to oversimplify, especially I find in, you know, most writing of parenting on these issues in more mainstream places really oversimplifies the issue. And so if we can take anything, I think just to say how difficult it is to make these blanket will just be, just do this to be a better parent, just do that to be, there are layers and layers and layers mm-hmm. to what goes on behind everyone's decision and whether or not changing anything is actually adaptive or not. Mm, I agree. But I am hoping that there will be a follow-up of this and some more research along these lines, because it's not just emotion regulation, but so many different issues have cropped up with respect to SES, uh, racism, social inequity, et cetera, would be wonderful to follow up with these researchers. So I'm hoping that they will continue to do so. That's it for this week. I hope this conversation has helped you understand that perhaps the concept of the good parent is one that needs to be a little bit more nuanced. Please join me next week as I sit down with the incredible Dr. Amanda Detmer. She is a leader in the field of studying the effects of early life experience on later life outcomes, health and otherwise. In this conversation, we got to talk about so much, and I can't wait to share it all. So whether you want to hear about the intergenerational effects of parenting, the effects of parenting on the microbiome, or cognitive outcomes, or even animal rights and research, this will be one you won't want to miss. Until then, stay safe and happy parenting.